Here at Refuge, we basically take you through the Word of God, and uh, we, we go through basically the whole counsel of God. And one of the things that Paul said is that he has not shunned to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And, um, and that's very important for us. Sometimes we can get caught up in uh, topicals, you know, where we get into this or that and, and not fully get everything that the Lord has spoken from Genesis to Revelation. And we miss a lot. We actually miss a lot. And what I've um, continued, continually realized is that as we go through the whole counsel of God, um, you hit all the topics, all the subjects, everything that has to do with, uh, with our lives. And the Word of God, I don't have to make it relevant. It is relevant. And, it's, and it applies to our everyday lives. But one thing that came to mind is in Romans chapter 10, it says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so I wanted to encourage you because it's not just my job to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. It's actually a, the Great Commission. It's something that was given to each and every one of us uh, as believers to preach the good news. As it says in Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so it's with great joy that I come this evening to present to you one portion of Scripture, one chapter. As we continue going through, it's amazing how, how we see God's character. It just comes to the surface. And as we, as we come to understand a bit better his character and how much he loves us, we also can see the depths of his love for us. And um, how it is that when he spoke in his word, he will never leave us, he will never forsake us, he meant that. Um, he wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Not just for salvation, by the way, but also in just everyday life. I've always said that the Christian should live a, a daily life of repentance. You know, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow the Lord, that's something that requires repentance, humility, and a sober mind, that we would be keenly, acutely aware of God in our lives. And so, again, it's with great joy that we come this evening and uh, we study God's Word. We are, again, in Numbers chapter 21, and in this chapter we have the advancement of the Israelites, finally, right? Uh, we have many years of, of them wandering in the wilderness. But at this portion, we start to see a, a little movement here, some advancement as they face off with some of their adversaries. They gain some ground. But again, what we need to understand is that it is not without battling some of their own demons again. And we're going to cover that this evening as well. You see, there are enemies that we battle from without, but there are enemies that we battle from within. They can both be deadly if we don't deal with them quickly, decisively, but rightly, according to how it is that the Lord has instructed for us according to His Word. 
We're encouraged by the word of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, when he writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And so we are encouraged this evening as we look at this, and we're going to take a look at some battles here, again from without, but also from within, that you would be encouraged and that you would withstand in the days of evil, that you would stand firm in the word of God. Now, the battles are not imaginations, they are not mythologies, they are not childish fairy tales, they are as real as real can be, then they are not to be taken lightly. We must be ready and willing to live by and with the Lord and in His strength and by His Spirit. We have victories and defeats before us. We'll we'll look over them. But know this, the Lord is faithful. And one thing that we should always pray is that His will be done. We are called to draw near to Him. And the Word tells us that He will draw near to us. We should follow Him closely as He commands and and as He directs our steps. We know that in Him, we fight on and we battle in victory, not for victory. So again, the battles are real. And what I hope that you are encouraged with this evening is to be battle ready. We need to be ready and willing to move forward, but we ought to know what it is that we are up against but know even more so who is with us, in whose name we go forth in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We ask, Father, that you would help us to get battle ready. We know that, Lord, uh, these battles are, are real. They are upon us, sometimes heavier than at other times. And yet greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so I pray, Father, that you would speak to us this evening. Father, may your spirit teach us, give us understanding, give us remembrance, perhaps of other verses that would help support and encourage that which we're going over this evening. And so, Lord, we commit this time into your hands, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Numbers chapter 21. Let's start off in verse 1 here. When the Canaanite... The king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. He fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. So again, after many years of wandering in the desert, the Israelites were now making their way closer to the promised land. They were getting closer to entering into the promised land. This is when we see more battles taking place for the Israelites. They start engaging the enemy, and we have them recorded in Scripture. We're going to cover a few this evening in this chapter. 
the king of Arad who lived in the Negev, that is south of Judah, south of Jerusalem, as we know the map uh, of Israel and we're familiar with where Jerusalem is. It's just south of there. And so the king of that area, that piece of land, heard that the Israelites were coming. And he went out and confronted them, fought against them, and took some of the Israelites as prisoners. Well, apparently at this point, there was plenty of fight in the Israelites. And they quickly went to the Lord and vowed to utterly destroy the, uh, the people of King Arad and all of their cities, basically offering them, devoting them as an offering unto the Lord, an offering of destruction. And they said, if you would just give our people back, we will completely devote them to destruction. And the Lord agreed. And the Israelites did indeed destroy the cities and the Canaanites under King Herod's rule in a place called Horma. And I want to bring to your attention something very important for us to take note of. And you see, the last time that we heard about Horma, it was mentioned back in Numbers chapter 14. That was when the Israelites were actually defeated by them because they were faithless. You remember the bad report that the spies had brought back and the Lord had told them what the judgment would be for their faithlessness. And as they heard this, they mourned. They were deeply in um, a state of mourning. They were sorrowful. But it was too little too late. And even after the Lord had told them that they, would, they, they were not to enter the promised land, they advanced anyway. And they were defeated. Numbers chapter 14 verses 39 through 45 gives us this account. When Moses told these words to all the people of Israel, the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord when that when that will not succeed. Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. For there the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword. Because you have turned back from following the Lord, the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. And that is with them. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Horma. That was the last time we heard that name mentioned. But this time the Lord granted them victory. I also want to point out that in this battle the enemy was completely destroyed. Nothing was left It was completely, basically left unusable for anyone else. Have you ever come across something, perhaps of some kind of monetary value, that at this point you realize isn't worth keeping? At least now that you have a relationship with the Lord. But you think, man, this is worth something. At least I could sell it and get something for it. 
But then if you sell it, then you'll put that very thing in someone else's hands and you know that that wouldn't be a good thing. There was much value within Horma. Many things that they could have kept for themselves and it was a great value. But it was completely devoted to the Lord through its destruction. Likewise, that which is destructive and evil is to be devoted to the Lord by completely destroying it in your life. Sometimes, you know, what we do is we leave the door cracked a little bit. Not completely open, but it's just cracked enough. Be careful because the snake will find a way to slither in and bite and devour. We can't, we can't do that. We can't compromise. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. The thing with that which is evil and sinful in our lives, it's not something that we leave for later or just a little bit's okay because the good will overcome the bad in our lives. It's like once you identify it, it's time to devote it to the Lord and offer it to Him. This is destruction. This is completely to be done away with. Because if not, the evil one is cunning. And he's been at it for a long time. He'll deceive you and he'll come in and he'll take you out. And so they devoted. The Israelites devoted. The people, the cities, everything to destruction. And with faith in God, they had victory and they advanced. Uh, But Israel, from there, traveled around Edom. And what we're going to see is they got very frustrated. They got overwhelmed again. And they succumbed to their circumstances once again. Verse 4 says, From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea, to the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Let's pause for a moment. We're here again. I know it's familiar. It's a cycle that they go through, right? Impatience has a way of distorting truth and amplifying self. Me, myself, and I. We can always try to justify why we do the things we do and the things we don't do when we are frustrated. We say things like, well, under the present circumstances, you would be frustrated also, wouldn't you? Did the people not have reason to be frustrated? The answer is yes. I mean, think about this. They were in this place where they could go straight into the promised land, but instead they had to do a 180 and go in the opposite direction. Into very difficult terrain. They had to take the long way around. Yeah, so of course, they did have reason to be frustrated. But let me also tell you this, that they did not have an excuse for it. They had to turn away. This was something that the Lord was allowing for them to experience. Yeah, they could be frustrated. 
But their responsibility was how to respond to that frustration. You see, the mind is always something that the enemy will go after. He'll use your circumstances as well as other people who are weak-minded and not strong in their faith and knowledge of God's word to work you into a frenzy. You get all uptight, all worked up, stressed out, full of anxiety. And then you start saying those, those words. Yeah, I'm frustrated. I'm like stressed out. This is crazy, the circumstances that I find myself in. And what's being affected is your mind. It's how you think. You start looking within when you should be looking up and without. You should be looking to the Lord for His wisdom. How do I handle this? Well, this is how. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says, We destroy arguments. Oh, we devote them to destruction? Yes, we do. Once you identify them, you give them to the Lord. So, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. I love that. Why? Because sometimes we play around with the thoughts. We identify them, but then we're like, man, we'll just we'll kind of pray about this and Hopefully through prayer, that's kind of like the process of healing and and we'll get to that point to where I finally can get to the other side. It's no different than going to the psychologist for sessions. Listen, God has called us to repent. That's what he's called us to. We have, are we justified in our frustration? Okay, yes, I'll give you that. Are we justified in our response to that frustration if it's against the very will of God? How can you say yes? We're not. You know what happens is we succumb to our emotions when in fact I just read one verse that tells us those things that we identify to be opinions that are formed against the Lord are to be destroyed Every argument, every lofty opinion, these prideful opinions, it's like as if we know better than God. Actually, He knows what's best for us. They are to be taken captive to obey Christ, submitting to Him, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. If He can get you all wound up, then you'll easily fall into sin. Easily. What they could have done is sought the Lord, considered God's faithfulness in previous occasions, and remembered God's promises. It's amazing when we do that. We, I mean, if you were to sit down and just think, just, Lord, remind me. Remind me of who you are in my life. Remind me of all of those things, the blessings, how you've been there. You've been faithful. You've been trustworthy. Remind me of those things. As I go through your word, give me words that would strengthen me and encourage me in the right way of thinking. That's his will for you. And if you ask for that with all sincerity, he'll give it to you. A quick way to have victory over frustration is to submit 
the situation to the Lord and ask Him to give you a way of handling it. His way. Not a way. His way. You need wisdom? Just ask. Jot down James chapter 1, verse 5. James 1, 5. Remember that one must be able to identify the circumstances for what they are and then respond accordingly. You see, there was a bigger picture. Even for the Israelites, as, as they turned around and went the long way around, they're like, oh my God, we were, we were so close. So close, right? Sometimes we feel like, yeah, we were, mm, we were so close. The Lord allow us to go the long way around. There's a bigger picture. Brothers and sisters, there's a bigger picture. There was a bigger picture here as the Israelites faced these circumstances and there's a bigger picture for us in life. There always is with God. What are my circumstances? What truth should I focus on to get me uh, through How should I represent my Lord through this situation? Where is my hope placed? Do I believe I have hope? And how is how I'm responding to this trial going to help someone else that is going through something similar? To help someone else. I've gone through this. This is how you can get through it too. 2 Timothy 8. Uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, Resist him, that is the devil, Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's nothing new under the sun. What we're going through, someone else is going through as well. And so it's amazing how we take comfort in that. It's like, okay, so someone else is going through this very thing that I'm going through right now. Yes. Yes. They are. You see, we need to learn how to withstand the enemy. We need to learn how to stand firm in the truth and not allow the difficult circumstances to get the best of us. But the people spoke against God and against Moses, and here comes the judgment. Verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
So the question is, fiery, fiery serpents. Well, that's how they're described, fiery serpents. We're not told exactly what's meant by this, but some people think that it was because they were red in color, and other people think that perhaps it was because after they were bitten that it was like it felt like a burning sensation. Um, if you've been stung by a bee, or you know that that's not a good <laughs> that's not a good feeling, right? But can you imagine that and a bite, and then it, it might have felt like it was on fire. But what we don't have is that description. As far as that's concerned, we're just told, we're given the description that they were fiery serpents. And God sent them to get the people's attention. It appears that God had to do this in order to change their way of thinking quickly. Quickly. He was obviously perfectly effective in allowing this to take place amongst the people. Because if they had continued in the way they were thinking, the things that they were saying, they would have never entered the promised land. None of them would have entered the promised land. But God sent judgment. But when the people repented and asked Moses to intercede on their behalf, and he did, they were given a way of being made well by God. It it reminds me of how the Lord desires... For us to repent, to come to that place of, of confessing our sins to the Lord. In that one verse, 1 John 1, 9, you probably know it very well. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's amazing. It's like, uh, surely God, you're not going to forgive me again, are you? He says, try me. Try me. One more time. One more time. Sometimes we, we get to a place to where we're not willing to forgive ourselves and it really has nothing to do with that. And so therefore we think, God, God surely is not going to forgive me again. I've just gone too far, one too many times. And he says, no, one time. I desire that you would be made right before me. Confess your sins. And as you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Just as God made a way for them on this day, He makes and has made a way for us to be made right before Him. So the people had confessed their sin, but God commanded Moses to make this fiery serpent. They're getting bit by fiery serpents, but God commanded Moses to make this fiery serpent and set it up on a pole. And that all who were bitten would be made well when they looked up to the fiery serpent. It seems kind of odd. Wouldn't you think uh, we're being bit by these fiery serpents and, and now you've commanded Moses to make this fiery serpent and put it up on a pole? But Jesus made reference to this. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may, may have eternal life. See, bronze is associated with judgment, and with this thought, it is made also, you could say, by passing through the fires of judgment. It's, um, it, it's made in such a way that it has to pass through the fires. You, you know how gold is refined? It's with intense heat. 
Well, bronze, just as gold is purified in heat, bronze is forged together and it's strengthened by heat. But it's spoken of as judgment. And so this bronze serpent speaks of evil, but it is an evil that has been judged, just as Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross. And our sin was judged by Jesus. The bronze serpent is a picture of sin judged and dealt with. And keep in mind that those who were bitten by these fiery serpents, they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to do a single thing. They simply had to believe in what they were told would heal them. You get bitten. In order to have your eyes placed on that fiery serpent on top of that pole, you need to believe the words that were spoken, that you will be healed if you fix your eyes on that which is hanging on the tree. You see, this was a God-ordained symbol, something that Jesus referred to and spoke of himself. It wasn't to be an idol, not something to look at as a lucky rabbit's foot, but unfortunately the people made it into just that, and they worshipped it after the fact. In fact, in Numbers chapter 18, verse 4, Actually, I believe it was in Kings. Um, It was in Kings. I have this, uh, I don't have this right, but it was in Kings to where it says, He, King Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So I actually made it into an idol. They worshipped it. It's it's amazing. Fallen man can take anything good and glorious to God and make a mockery of it by worshipping the creation and fall into idolatry. Instead of worshipping the Creator, we we tend to find every way possible to worship creation. And we are fooled by that. But in this sense, that came later. This, what we have before us, is that which brought healing. And let's continue verse 10. This is Israel's journey to Moab. And the people of Israel set out and camped in Oboth, and they set out from Oboth and camped in Iabarim and in the wilderness that is opposite Moab toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped in the valley of Zered. From there they set out and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites For the Arnon is the border of Moab, between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waeb and Sufa in the valleys of the Arnon, in the slopes of the valleys, that extends to the seat of Ar, and leans to the border of Moab. And from there they continued to Be'er, that is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, so that I may give them water. Then Israel sang the song, spring up a well, sing to it, the well that the princess made, that the nobles of the people dug with the scepter and with their staffs. And from the wilderness they went on to Matana, and from Matana to Nahaliel, and from Nahaliel to Bamoth, 
and from Bamoth to the valley lying in the region of Moab by the top of Pisgah that looks down on the desert. And so they continued. Um, this basically is a time when there was a sense of elation within the Israelites. And it's illustrated by what we have before us here because they're quoting from the book of Wars of the Lord and they, saw, they sang this song. And so there was a sense of elation. They were going through. And it's a fitting response. You know, they had, they had received judgment. There was a lot of Israelites that had fallen. But they looked upon the serpent that was up on the pole. And they found relief. They found healing. And they were able to continue on their journey toward the promised land. And so it was a fitting response to having been shown mercy by the Lord and remembering that He was with them and that He was taking them to exactly where He had promised them was His, was theirs. And uh, they were going to what awaited them beyond the present. And that's always something to be elated uh, with and for. Why? Because we have this certain hope in Jesus Christ. Like this is not our home. We're pilgrims. We're, we're uh, described as people who are just, we're coming through for a moment. But our home is in the presence of the Lord. And that awaits us. And so that's what we have before us here. And um, because of time, we're going to continue going. Uh, but this, this shows the actual a way in which they, they traveled. Let's continue though. Verse 22, 21 says, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and found and, and fought against Israel. We'll stop there for a moment. So Israel was denied passage. Israel was doing well in requesting passage through the land of the Amorites, sending messengers to King Sihon. But what we see here is that he didn't allow them to pass and even sent his army to fight the Israelites right where they were. You remember Edom had to refuse, but, it, but they didn't provoke any kind of fighting. But the Amorites, so well, we see how they responded. They responded differently. And we see how it was that King Sion's heart was assisted by the Lord. Um, as we see the Lord hardening the heart of King Sion. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, it says, But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord our God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand, as he is this day. And now the Israelites, all they were doing was, Hey, listen, we're just requesting to go through. That's all they were doing. They were requesting to go through. They said, Hey, we're not going to go into your land. We're just going to go by way of the king's highway and continue to go through. But God hardened this king's heart so that they would actually go up 
and against the Israelites, and the Israelites would defeat them and occupy the land. What we need to understand, though, is that God did not harden a heart that was already poised against Israel. He basically facilitated what was already in King Sion's heart and delivered him and the Amorites into the hands of the Israelites. We'll learn a little bit more about this as we continue. Verse 24. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to, to the Jabbok and as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore the ballad singers say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built. Let the city of Sion be established. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the city of Sion, It devoured Ar of Moab and swallowed the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab, O Moab. You are undone, O people of Chemosh. He has made his sons fugitives and his daughters captives into an Amorite king, Sion. So we overthrew them. Heshbon, as far as uh, Dibon, perished. And we laid waste as far as Nopha. Fire spread as far as Mediba. So the, the Lord handed the, Amor- the land of the Amorites and the Amorites themselves over to the Israelites and the Israelites took possession of all of these villages in which they lived. And they not only took possession, but they themselves lived within these villages. We know that the land ended up being the possession of the tribe of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And the poetry that we read tells basically of the might of the peoples there, the Amorites. And the greater the opponent, the more glorious is their defeat. You take down a big enemy, and the win, the victory, is that much more glorious. And so that was, that's what was being described here for us. The enemy was great in that area. They had defeated And defeated greatly everyone around there. The greater the opponents we face and defeat, the greater the glory we can give to God for the victory. And I believe this is why people love the story of the underdog coming to know victory over the Goliaths in life. Jeremiah 10 verses 6 and 7 says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And so this is something that brought great glory to the Lord. This great victory over what the world would see as a very powerful, powerful people. There is no greater one, though, than our God. And he is with us. And as we continue, verse 33. Actually, uh, let's finish out uh, these two verses because this is part of the Amorites. Thus Israel lived in the land, verse 31, of the Amorites. And Moses sent uh, to spy out Jazer, and they captured its villages and dispossessed the Amorites who were there. Then they turned and went up by the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against them. He and all his people to battle at Edri. 
But the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, and all his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sion, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people, until he had no survivor left, and they possessed his land. Bashan defeated. So we see here, at the close of this chapter, how it was that the Israelites were given one more victory here. They routed Bashan and took possession of the land. This confrontation was also not one that was provoked by the Israelites, and yet the Lord said to Moses that they would defeat and take them out just as they had previously done to King Sion and his people. The Lord was giving their land into the hand of the Israelites. It's encouraging when you have a little momentum going your way. You know, you've had a victory. But let's not forget that they had some defeats as well. The Israelites, they may have gone through a few victories. They were gaining a little momentum here. But remember remember that they had just uh, spoken up against the Lord and Moses. And I always... I always hope that we as God's people would never surrender, would never get to a place to where we give up, to where we think that we, have, we, we can be any less effective in, in advancing for the kingdom of God. God can breathe life into bones. He can create a man from the dust of the earth. A woman from the side of a man. He can do the impossible with a man who is simply willing and believes in him. And so, I believe it's a prime example with the Israelites how it was that they had sinned, they had fallen, they had been judged even. Many had died, have fallen because of this sin. But they had gone through that, confessing their sins to the Lord and asking the Lord to step in. He did provide salvation for them and allowed them to continue on in advance. And so it's encouraging. It's encouraging when we have a few victories. Victory begets confidence, and yet we need to be careful not to finish in the flesh what the Lord has begun in the Spirit by God and for His glory. Our confidence is to be in the Lord and all glory is to be given to Him. There were plenty of enemies from without that the Israelites would have to deal with. This is only the beginning. Remember, they're still in the wilderness. They haven't even entered into the promised land. And by the way, as they enter into the promised land, their enemies would only increase. The battle is would become a normal part of life for them. And so for us, remember that the promised land is not heaven. All right? The promised land for us, you could say, is the abundant life in Christ. To know that. Because in heaven there are no battles. You're not fighting to gain any kind of ground. You've gained possession in its entirety. And in that place, 
we know that we're going to come across the schemes of the enemy. He'll try and come in and do a number on us. Remember that when you start to get frustrated, that you need to look to the Lord. You need to keep your eyes fixed on Him. And I love what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians. You guys should have it memorized by now. Right? I I always refer to this. Why? Because it it has served me so well. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So be ready. Be sober-minded. Know how to recognize and discern the times and the circumstances in which you find yourself and learn how to deal with those things in a way in which is fitting for the child of God to respond in a way that glorifies God and helps you to get through victoriously. Father, we, uh, we do confess our sins to you. We are so sorry for forever doubting, Lord, for expressing, Lord, a, a frustration that has materialized in our lives, affecting our relationships with others, not fully understanding that the bottom line is that it's affected our relationship with you. We do ask for your help to help us to, to get through the circumstances that we either find ourselves in right now or will at some future time. Lord, help us to stand firm on the truth, on your word, and to take our steps only as you ordain them. Lord, to move forward in victory, confident because you are trustworthy, you are faithful. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you love us. We thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to have a right relationship with you. Not by anything that we've done, but what you've done. By sending your son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. To be buried and three days later to resurrect. Having victory over sin and the grave. We thank you, Lord, for in him we have victory. We praise you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.